Hello and welcome to episode 32 of Command Space. I am your host, Mike Hurley, and I'm joined today by Mr. Lex Friedman. Hi, Lex. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to be here with you. I'm very happy that you've joined me. You are a man with a great radio voice, so it's, <laughs> it's going to be um, an enjoyable thing for all involved, I'm sure. It's, today. Well, I, that immediately makes me think two things. One, every American listener uh, is definitely more interested in your voice than mine because it's just so it's always so fun to hear accents, and I don't know even why that is. And two, I really cannot take any credit for the voice. I don't do any, you know, I, I didn't do any special training. It's just the one I was born with. But it is your voice, so you can take some credit for it. Unless <laughs> I guess unless that's true. You have some sort of elaborate computer program going on right now. I wish I did. That would be very cool. Yeah, the the accent thing works very well in my favour, um, because I'm diff- my voice is different to the rest of the podcasters because I am not American. Right. So that that works nicely for me. I actually don't speak very well for a British person, but I don't think you guys can notice that too much. I think you sound wonderful. <laughs> You're very kind. So, Lex, why don't you tell our listeners what you like to be known for? Well, uh, by day, I am a senior writer for Macworld. And uh, so there I write about anything related to the Apple ecosystem. Uh, do news, reviews, opinion pieces, how-tos, all that kind of thing. And uh, by night... I am a superhero. By night, I uh, or I guess my side gig is that I co-host the Unprofessional podcast with my friend Dave Whiskus, and uh, I'm also a dad to three very nice kids. Those are the three things I like to be known for. I think. Cool. They are. I'm. I like that you like to be known for being the father to your children. That's probably good to your family. Yeah, you know it's. I, every time I say something like that, I feel a little bit hokey about it and a little bit worried about the hokiness factor involved. But it's really true. I, I devote a large portion of my conscious thoughts to the fact that I'm a dad and thinking about what that means and what I should be doing. And so it's 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 not lip service, even though I feel like it sounds a little bit uh, like I say a little bit hokey. Will they listen? Uh, no, they're a little too young to listen to this podcast or to any podcast really my oldest is six and the youngest is two (laughs) they definitely can't listen to your show that's true (laughs) yeah and i wonder about that sometimes you know is there an age that they get to where i have to worry about the fact that they could easily find the things i create online and uh, will i have to start censoring myself more over time i don't know that is an interesting thing i I don't have children but obviously i have family and i all of our stuff is is kept relatively clean anyway but i do wonder it's like with co-workers and stuff and i think they could potentially find this and then want to talk to me about it and that's strange for me right do you get that i mean when um you have sort of people in the real world ask you what you do for a living like what how do you answer that question you know, with now it's pretty easy. You know, I can just say that I, I write for Macworld, and usually then the question is, "Oh, so so you work for Mac?" Uh, because that's what they're calling Apple mistakenly. <laughs> and I have to explain that no, I don't work for Apple, and that they're separate companies, and that, you know, it's, it's different. We can criticize Apple, which would be harder to do if we worked for Apple. Um, but so you know, I've got some friends who are. Tech savvy is probably pushing it too far, but friends who are interested in technology and who follow this stuff. And so once they find out what I do, they try to read everything I write and they'll email me or call me or text me and say, hey, I saw you wrote about this and here's what I think. 
or hey, which smartwatch should I get or whatever. And so that's that's nice, I guess, that I can be their trusted source. <laughs> I guess what uh, Macworld has, carries a bit of weight behind it, though, which is which is got, must be kind of nice. I mean, you maybe have more people that might be aware of it either through hearing the name through the conference, even though it's a separate thing. But I, I'm sure people hear Macworld and and. Uh, uh, they you you get some sort of recognition from that i guess right i mean it's it's i mean for me for sure i was i wanted to work at macworld because of you know my affection for the brand whether people whom i'm talking to uh know what that is uh is a question you know if if they if they're at all tech savvy if they're interested in that thing then for sure i mean if you're an apple fan and you read the you know if you follow apple news online even if macworld isn't one of your daily stops which by the way it should be um you know you've heard of it um but then when you know if i'm talking to my tax preparer and he wants to know what to put in the occupation line he has no idea what macworld is yeah so you mentioned that you you know you'd wanted to to work for macworld had this been a long term like a long term ambition like was it a, a goal of yours that you had for them specifically <laughs> You know, it's that's an interesting question. Where I, uh, I knew when I went to university, I was going to say college, but I decided to British it up for you. I when like I went, that. Thank you. When I went to university, <laughs> I was thinking I didn't want to ma- major in any computer science related field because I had been I had been doing and studying computer programming throughout my childhood and life, and I wanted to be done with that and not wrestle with computers for a living. So I majored in linguistics and cognitive science, and I graduated, and then I had no idea what I was going to do, and my now wife, then fiance, and I moved to Los Angeles, California, and I got a job working for uh, an agent in Hollywood, working as an assistant to an agent, uh, and it was horrible. And so I very quickly left and started working doing tech support at a web hosting company, Um, and that job was meant to be a full-time job, and I was replacing somebody for whom it had been a full-time job, but I found that I was able to answer all of the tech support emails in about an hour, and then I had seven hours left in the day in which I started learning web development because I had never done that kind of coding before. Uh, so I ended up doing all kinds, and then eventually I was doing programming jobs full-time, and uh, then I was in web development, internet development stuff for a long time, and I enjoyed the work, but when I was, you know, I was always a, a lifelong Apple fan, and so I was a regular reader of sites like Macworld uh, or magazines like Macworld before there were websites there. And um, I was following Jason Snell, uh, the editor in chief at the time of Macworld. He's now in even higher rank there. Um, and I was following him on Twitter, and he posted, "If you want to write reviews for Macworld, email this address." And I thought, well, that would be interesting. So I emailed that address, and they wrote back, you know, you can write. 200-word reviews of iPhone apps for $25. And I thought, well, that's not that interesting to me, actually, because I had this, you know, fancy, highfalutin internet job. But still, I'll be published in Macworld, maybe, so that'll be fun. So I did that, and after I had done a few of those, I said, we like it. We want you to do longer reviews for more money, and then we want you to do even longer things for even more money. And so I was doing tons and tons of freelancing for Macworld while holding down my day job at this internet company. And eventually, I realized I was having way more fun doing the Macworld stuff than I was doing the day job stuff. Um, and so I begged and pleaded for Macworld to hire me, and eventually after uh, a couple of years of my begging and pleading, they did. Well, that's a nice story. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm happy that it worked. I mean, how long were you begging and pleading for? Well, I freelanced for two years before I got hired. And the thing was, you know, I really enjoyed my web work. And, you know, I eventually had moved from development into 
into product development stuff, and I was really focused on product and community at a couple large internet companies. But while I liked the work, eventually the companies I was working at, or the, really the, the most recent internet company I was working at, changed a lot. I was one of the first 20-something employees, and by the time I left, there were 600 employees. It was on wow. its third business model. You know, it, it was different. And <laughs> really? I wasn't really, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't really a fan of what was going on anymore. And the, the true story is that um, I had had a trip. This company that I was working for was in Santa Monica, California. So I had... Jason Snell had mentioned that Macworld had an opening and I could come interview for it. So Macworld, instead of flying home when I was supposed to leave Santa Monica after a work trip, I took a flight from Southern California to Northern California to San Francisco where Macworld is. And I met with Macworld and I had a series of interviews there, went out to lunch with Jason and some other Macworld people. And I came home and he said, we're going to need a couple weeks to figure this out. And then as it turned out, they hired David Chartier. Uh, whom I will never speak to again. No, but um, <laughs> David's a great guy, but they hired him. And when I saw David tweet excitedly that he was now working for Macworld, I, I, I'm I, thinking, uh-oh, and before I can even email Jason, I have a message from him saying, hey, I wanted to tell you before you saw it. And it's too late, Jason. Uh, so it was actually another year before uh, they had another opening and I got hired for that one. I think I'd heard you mention that story on on unprofessional it's possible but it was it was a you know i was so i knew that it was a, a stretch for me to get the job at macworld mostly because it's a they knew what i was making at the internet job and the the internet sort of industry that i was in has is a whole different world from publishing and i was ready to make that kind of career change and the the salary drop that goes with it but at the the first time i had met with them they just didn't feel like they could do it in any way that would would work for me so they waited another year, and then we figured out a way to make it happen. So it's, a, it's like a fairy tale story. That's right, and I'm very happy at MacWorld. I love it. So, what 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 are your daily duties at MacWorld now? Like, what what does a day in the life of uh, Lex Friedman, the MacWorld writer, consist of? So, one of the great things, one of the many great things, actually, about working there uh, is I do not have most of the time. I don't have a a task list from a boss saying here are the 16 things i need you to write today um i have quotas is putting it strong you know we're supposed to my colleague dan morin and i are meant to have one op-ed piece at a minimum running on the site a day that doesn't have to mean that we've written it but we have to make sure we we find one and get one published and ready so usually that ends up meaning that i'm going to write one op-ed myself a week um I have a ton of hardware that gets shipped to my home office for me to review, and some things are higher priority and, uh, than others, but it all has to get reviewed eventually. So I have this anytime I have a, nothing to do, there's always still something to do because I've, I can pick up any piece of hardware that's in the office and start testing it out. Um, and then the same with software, where there's just plenty of apps and things to do. And then we've just got a, a bunch of different editors who all have requests as well and so you know if somebody says to me just in fact just last week i had an editor ask if i would write something about uh using siri for productivity reasons you know how to be productive with siri um and you know i'm able to say no to anybody who isn't my my direct boss there but when somebody comes to me with a pitch like that where it feels like it'd be a fun thing for me to write i'll i'll say yes and do it so honestly i schedule most of my work life through reminders 
um, on the Mac and on iOS. And I just pencil in, you know, 9 a.m. tomorrow, start writing about uh, this smartwatch that I'm reviewing. And at 1 p.m. tomorrow, uh, do a tutorial on whatever. And when those reminders come, if I'm ready, then I start that next door. And if they're not, I snooze it for another couple of hours. And that's, that's sort of how I get through my day each day. If um, somebody doesn't give you an idea for a piece, how do you come up with them? Like, is there a specific process or do you just like keep a pen and paper in your pocket and write down things as they come to you? Uh, it's definitely not a pen and paper. I'll put it on my, I want to say iPhone and this is a conflict for me right now because as you may or may not know, I'm in a, currently I'm in an experiment where I've switched to a windows phone for a month, but normally I would say I would jot down the notes on my iPhone as they occur to me. But I don't necessarily have a process for how I'm going to write about things. It's mostly just, I'm a very, uh, aggressive consumer of what's going on each day. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit over connected, I think, to things like Twitter and app.net and RSS where I want to keep on top of what's happening. And as things interest me, I'll check in and see if anybody else is writing about them. And if they're not, I will. There's a, a lot of this at the moment because we've got you trying the Windows phone and we've got Andy Anatko uh, who's writing pieces for TechHive about him switching to Android. It's it's very interesting to see it's, this stuff. It, it, it definitely is very interesting. And it's you know, Andy truly switched, and he waited until he had switched and been happy with his switch before he wrote about it. And I think it's extra surprising because Andy Nutko is well known as a as an Apple guy. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, I I have been jealous of some things on the Windows Phone side, and I wanted to experience them firsthand. And I uh, so you know when I I talked to Microsoft and I said, Hey, can I have a, a Lumia 920? They're they're excited to give them to Apple people because they want to see what happens. Um, and there's, there's plenty to like literally just before we started recording this podcasting session, I, um, I had this, uh, I had to write my second of my four or five pieces that I'm going to be writing about the windows phone. And in writing that today, I sort of realized or, or summarize some of the things that have been stressing me out about the Windows Phone, where the first piece was, you know, here are many things that I like about the Windows Phone. This time it's here are many things that are really aggravating me. Um, and I think I left writing the first one. I said, there's a, I can actually see myself uh, not wanting to switch my phone. And then I did this one, and I'm like, man, is the month over yet? Can I switch back to my iPhone? So I don't know where it'll be. And um I have new things to try in the week ahead, some new apps that uh, some folks from Microsoft suggested I give a try to. So we'll see how that goes. I can only imagine that they're willing to help as much as, as, much as possible. Like, That's right. Please say it's good. <laughs> please, Lex. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing, I mean, I really do. I saw already that Microsoft linked for something that I said um, to, to, to the first piece that I wrote because there is plenty to like. I mean – I think it is A-OK for anyone to be an Apple fan and still to recognize that other companies uh, are capable sometimes of doing great things themselves. So I, I don't have – if I did decide to switch to Windows Phone, it could make my job a little bit harder. I'd have to have some kind of iPhone lying around so that I can continue to write about it. But it wouldn't be any trouble for anyone at Macworld if I did that. And you could do more stuff for TechHive on the Windows Phone, couldn't you? That's right. So let's talk about Unprofessional. So this is okay. a show that um, you and Mr. Dave Whiskus um, do together on Mule Radio, the Mule Radio Syndicate. How long have you? How long has the show been going on for now? It's, I believe you said that you and I are doing episode number thirty-two right now. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, we just released episode number thirty of ours uh, the first week of March. So about thirty weeks. It was obviously a good time for podcasts. 
That's right. We basically, we saw yours, Mike, and we said, man, we've got to get into this racket. And then it was just from there, you know, and now look where you guys are. <laughs> That's right. Big success. You've had some great guests. I mean, I, I, I think one of my favorite things about your show is the real mix of people that you get on. Um, and then the quite insane mix of topics. <laughs> for anybody I would say that, that those are my favorite things about the show. <laughs> for anybody that hasn't heard the show, what's sort of a very brief summary of, of, of what Unprofessional is all about? So it's actually, it's, it's yet another story of my life that involves Mac World and Jason Snell. But the very short version is Dave and I had uh, thought we should do a podcast together. Mule thought that they should host a podcast that Dave and I did together. And we recorded, I don't know, 10 or 12 episodes where we knew we did not want to do uh, a talk show knockoff. We didn't want to be two guys just talking about the tech news of the day because John Gruber does that and it does it great and we don't need another podcast that does that. Um, so we were talking just about things we any anything in life that we thought we could that we both liked and could critique uh so sometimes it was television shows and sometimes it was uh other kinds of pop culture things and sometimes it was software or hardware related and jason snell before the show got released he and i were talking about it, he said you know what that's probably going to be competitive with MacWorld and tech Hive, uh if you do focus on technology at all so we had these 10 episodes in the can that we uh, eventually waved goodbye to and decided let's refocus and let's make the show being talking to interesting people about anything but technology and that very quickly once we started having non-technology guests it really became let's talk to interesting people about anything but their day jobs um so it's a conversation it's a show where we have conversations with uh interesting people many of whom you hopefully have heard of either through you know the tech world or through pop culture i guess some of whom will probably be new to a decent percentage of listeners and we talk to them about anything that uh, they want to talk about where we just all sort of exchange stories the one thing we don't want to be is an interview show uh not because we have a problem with interview shows as much as that's just not what we set out to do we want to have our guests be sort of like the the third a rotating third host for the show so we all just converse and no one's specifically interviewing anybody else You've kind of alluded on the show that you don't really do a lot of planning before for the types of topics that you're going to discuss. Is this really the case? Well, you know, it, I would say Susan Orlean's episode, which at, as the time we're recording this, uh, that's our most recently released episode. But hers was the first episode where we said we are not going to come up with any topics ahead of time at all. Um, and... So we didn't plan with her at all. We just said we're going to dive into the conversation and see what happens. So the um, the next, uh, I would say, the next couple of weeks, we'll probably keep trying that. But before that, uh, in general, we would email with guests ahead of time and talk to them and say, you know, what what are some ideas you'd like to talk about? Or uh, in many cases, one of us, either Dave or, or I, would email out and say, hey, here are a couple things we're thinking about talking about. Which of these are appealing to you? Or do any of these appeal to you? Um, when we forgot to do the email ahead of time, because we do like to live up to the show's name of being unprofessional, <laughs> we would um, have that conversation on Skype right before we started the recording session. Um, but other than saying, you know, here are some some not even bullet points, but just, you know, here are some topics we could get to, we, we have done we do very little prep on that respect. <laughs> and I would say, Mike, what's, what's really fun to me is oftentimes we'll have a list of topics and then um, the conversation starts and we're not going to say, well, let's immediately start talking about uh, 
grooming because it's not really how we don't want to just we want it to sort of flow organically so there have been shows where we have a list of topics and we get to none of them <laughs> I, uh, which is also fine those ones are probably some of the best because what that's shown is is that the three of you have a chemistry that can sustain like 40 minutes or something just talking right and and that's good like i mean i have a list of topics and questions but we've already deviated from it a bunch because you know we're, we're sitting and talking and i'm obviously listening to what you're saying so i'm thinking of new things to ask and that's something like that that i think is really important when it comes to recording a show like this is there has to be some sort of conversation as opposed to just next question <laughs> yes and i think i think that's exactly right and i'm you know the the one time that it's worked in a way where it's been in my mind inorganic for us to try to stick to topics uh it still worked out well because it was john flansberg one of the two guys from they might be giants who was on the show and he, i had sent him he you know he was not interested in coming up with topics but he said if we had topics we should send them his way and so i had sent him this list of i don't know left-handedness and friendship and working with friends and a couple other things and he said i like all of these let's talk about all of them so we took a break to do the sponsor read and he said okay well i've checked off this one and this one but we need to talk about the remaining three from your list um so let's make sure we get to all of them and he was very specific that he wanted to hit all of those topics because he had thoughts on all of them and it worked out fine but it was very amusing to me like i remember I, when i was listening to that episode i felt i felt uncomfortable for you because he was asking it kind of during the sponsor read yes. and i was like this is the one time that you don't really want people getting involved and the truth is we do a lot of editing on our show too we we recorded with uh flansburg for probably close to 90 minutes and the show was about 45 minutes um but we found it so amusing that we chose to leave it in (laughs) it was a it was a great moment but it's just one of those ones i'm like oh no (laughs) i was like well please let him not to say something random about the sponsor the best was even before we started recording he wanted to know well why can't we talk about technology if lex is from macworld and so i gave him that same little story i just told you about you know how it would be competitive and we don't want to do that and he said but uh, he objected. He objected to Jason's policy. And he said, no, if you're known for tech, you should talk about tech wherever you are and whatever you do, and it would be good for the brand. And we had this, it was an interesting debate. It was, he was doing it very good-naturedly, but it was hilarious because no one has ever uh, taken up the counter-argument before. That is one of the great things about the show, though, is, your, is like the Lex is going to get fired <laughs> idea, right? Where if you talk about technology, you're worried that Jason's going to fire you. And, you know, I, I will admit to you here, Mike, publicly, possibly for the first time that we're – Dave and I have sort of consciously now tried to shy away from that only because – well, for two reasons. One, Jason I don't think is going to fire me. We've gotten pretty good at not talking about tech too much. And because we worried that people uh, – we didn't want people to think that we were constantly trying to see if I could risk getting fired. You know, it, I didn't want people to misinterpret what that get ongoing bit was about. So yeah. uh, it comes up from time to time still, but we try not to make that a focus anymore. And in fact, the most recent time I worried about getting in trouble with work was when we did a live episode from Macworld to iWorld, mm-hmm. and I was worried about people swearing during the show and that going out over Macworld.com. <laughs> yeah, that, it, that, and it, yeah, that one was I – felt, I felt that was fun to listen to, but I can imagine that you were just on absolute eggshells because you, <laughs> there, you were there recording was with swearing. Amy Gruber, right? That's right, Amy Gruber, that's right. And she kind of just said, well, I'm, I'm going to curse. And I was <laughs> like, well, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> it worked out fine. I got in no trouble that I know of. 
so you know you've been doing podcasting for for a while now um how does it differ to to writing and then do you have a one that you prefer do you prefer to record or write those are both good questions uh, i really enjoy writing and i think that my talent for writing specifically is that i am fairly good at writing quickly <laughs> um where if i have something to say it's not true for every piece I write, but if I'm going to write a review or an opinion piece, uh, I sort of am able to visualize, not word for word, but paragraph by paragraph and, and point by point what the story is going to be like before I write it down. I know some writers start with outlines or they start with notes. Um, generally, the only time I'll do that is if I have so many things to say that I'm worried about forgetting some things for a review. I'll put down little notes to myself, but then I, I still have an idea of what the shape of the piece is going to be before I start, and then it sort of just spills out of me. Um, I don't want to make it sound like I'm not taking credit for it or that it's coming from some strange higher power. I just think that's how my brain works. It figures out what the piece is going to look like, and then I can write it down. Uh, with podcasting, um, I enjoy that a lot too, and I... I, I hate to say, you know, that we don't do planning from professional to make it sound like we don't take it seriously or that we're just trying to fake our way through it because Dave and I talk about the show every day and are obsessive about it all and, and work very hard on figuring out who the guests are going to be and how are we going to get the best sponsors and how are we going to keep the, the right string of guests. You know, we want to make sure that, you know, we don't have too many quote unquote celebrity style guests in a row or too many tech guests in a row and that sort of thing. But I don't know. It's it's pretty fun to just sit in front of a microphone and talk, as I'm guessing you know too, Mike. But um, I think I think I like them both. If somebody wanted to pay me a ridiculous salary to podcast all day, and I would only write in my free time, I would be okay with that too. Because um, I, I I feel like I have a lot of things that I enjoy, and this is one of them, and writing is one of them, and I, I'm happy to do either one if people want to pay me for it. That's pretty good. I like the sound of that. <laughs> The fact there should be more money, I think, in this business. That's right. And you know what? I um, I think it's got a chance. I, I think right now podcasting is, I mean, almost all the money comes from sponsorships. Mm -hmm. And nobody, well, my take on it, as somebody who's in this business where I also do sell sponsor, sponsorships for, for my show and others on Mule, um, nobody has any idea what everybody else is paying and we don't know if we're charging too much or too little or just right or what. <laughs> and it's, it's all still very nebulous and, and burgeoning. And we also have lousy stats in terms of how many people are listening. You'd think we'd have much better stats than a radio station could have for how many people are listening to its programming, but uh, iTunes isn't great about numbers and you have to do bandwidth calculations and other things to figure it out. But I think, that, I think the numbers will get better uh, in terms of being able to measure your statistics I think that once people are better able to understand their reach, that'll help with sponsors even more. And I also think that uh, for-pay podcasts are inevitable, uh, that they'll come to iTunes or somewhere else will we'll make a, a big push to support that. And I think that there will be a market for those. I'm interested to see sort of how that, that goes along. I mean, there are people trying it out, but it's it's still quite niche. And also it's not very... It's an inelegant. There are only inelegant solutions really at the right. moment for paying for podcasts. Um, iTunes doesn't really get on too well with them, and you know, or you can put your RSS feed behind a paywall, and then you've got some people that don't know how to pull it into certain like podcatchers, and every single one of them's got a different method. There isn't right. there isn't a great solution at the moment, but I agree. I think that it 
seems like it would be a, a natural next step. But I think that at the moment, um, the industry and, and this type of medium is going through, um, I've sort of been calling it a renaissance a little bit, because it's not necessarily that there's more or less podcasts, but there just seems to be a lot more independent work and a lot more networks popping up and things like that, and people are getting together and, and, and making great stuff. So it's very I, I agree, and I think it's exciting. I think it's also the same as with blogging um, and maybe to a lesser degree with something like Twitter, where right now is a time where more and more people are realizing there, you know, there is a real opportunity here, even if it's not for uh, fortune, but at least for fame or recognition on the podcasting circuit, let's call it. Um, and so I feel like we're seeing an increasing number of podcasts pop up each day. Um, which isn't a good thing or a bad thing. Oh, I, let me rephrase. It, which isn't a bad thing. It is a good thing. And I, the challenge is I think it's easier for uh, an avid reader to subscribe to 200 blogs than it is for an avid podcast listener to subscribe to 200 podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's, you know, there's clearly there are blogs or Twitter accounts or whatever else uh, that are the best and most beloved, and then there's everybody else. Uh, competing for the few last bits of attention, and I think that the the top crop, which by the way I do not yet put unprofessional in, although we're, we'll aim for it. I think the top crop of podcasts uh, will have, by nature, have to be narrower and and tougher to break into. Yeah, I, I agree with that because it's not you know if you subscribe to MacWorld and I don't know like sites like Mac Rumors and um, Mac Stories, for example. You can skip a couple of you know stories here or there, a couple of news articles, read some bits. It's not really the same with podcasting. You don't kind of just start an episode and then skip ten minutes and then listen and then skip another twenty minutes and then maybe listen. It doesn't right. really work like that. You, and you can't like send a chunk of it to Instapaper. It's yeah, the, 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 there is a finite amount of time and attention that can be given to all of podcasting by each individual. That's right. Um, and for most people, it's just a commute. So for some people, it's like an hour a day. So most and podcasts these, these days could, could fill most people up for like two days. And I, um, I, you know, one thing for me is that as a, I used to, in my old job, I'd be, be able to watch TV or listen to a podcast while I worked. But when I'm writing, I can listen to music without a problem, but I can't listen to people talking or I'm not writing anything down. <laughs> so I have a hard time finding time to listen to podcasts uh, and I'm very interested in them. So it's, I usually save up, you know, weeks of podcasts and then listen to them when I'm doing a, an airplane ride or something for, for work and hear them all in one big batch. So that's why it's important to make timeless material like you do. That's right. So if you don't mind, Lex, I want to take a quick break to thank our sponsor for this week's episode. Um, Sounds good. Then I have some other interesting things I want to talk to you about when we reach the other side. So our sponsor this week is, of course, those fine folks over at squarespace.com who give you everything you need to make an amazing website. Squarespace provides you with all of the tools that you need to create your home online, whether that be a blog, portfolio, or even a business site. It doesn't matter how experienced you are when it comes to putting websites together. You can put something amazing online in minutes. You don't have to worry about hosting, scaling, integration with social services like Twitter and Facebook. You don't have to go and install statistics packages, buy a separate iPhone and Android apps. 
or even hire a designer because they take care of all of that stuff for you. They have beautiful responsive templates which you can implement and make customizations to very, very easily in their WYSIWYG design editor. They have a system called Layout Engine, which is their page builder, which allows you to drag and drop blocks of content around the page. You can very easily say if you want to add a video, some text, and or loads more, and just drag them around. Um, as I said, they have stats built in. They have real-time analytics. You can view these on your iOS and Android app, which they give you, which is free. And you can also post and manage your site as well. They have blog importers, 24-7 customer support, and loads more. And their most new and fantastic feature is Squarespace Commerce, which is they've just launched Squarespace Commerce. Um, so it's never been easier to start selling online now. With Squarespace Commerce, you can add a fully integrated store right into your website and you can start accepting payments instantly. They've partnered with Stripe for payment processing and they've got some they've been doing some great thinking and have tried to cover end to end what you need so they have inventory management if you want to sell physical goods they have email customization download links and hosting if you want to sell digital goods so you host stuff with Squarespace and people can receive emails with links that have expiry dates and stuff like that so it's very cool um, they have order processing you can print packing slips they can let you deal with multiple shipment methods tax ruling and stuff, they have coupons, the lot, and all of these things can be integrated into any new or existing Squarespace site. I want you to go and check this out and all of the other amazing features over at squarespace.com forward slash 70 decibels. If you go there, not only will you find out more information, you can also sign up for a free trial. Squarespace, sorry, Squarespace plans start at $10 a month. If you sign up for a year up front, you'll get 20% off your chosen plan. If you sign up for two years up front, you'll get 25% off. And use the code 70 decibels free at checkout and you'll get 10% off your first order. So go check out squarespace.com forward slash 70 decibels. They really do give you everything you need to make an amazing website. So Lex. I just want to say I also love Squarespace. They are very, very good. I, I have been using them for many years and I am very happy with them. I'm fairly new to them and uh, they're a frequent unprofessional sponsor as well and I, I was surprised by just how awesome it was. I know we're out of the sponsor but I, just, I felt like I had to say it because I'm such a big fan. You you have unprofesh.com, right? That's correct. Squarespace. It's very nice. Very good looking site. Thank you. And we can thank Squarespace for that, of course, as well exactly as your right. talents, of course, as well as your <laughs> talents. So you had a, an episode recently, I think it was episode 29, so it was about a week or so ago, and you had Mr. John Syracuse on, on yes. the show, who's going to be a guest on this show in a couple of weeks' time. Oh, good. Although I'm actually, record, as we record today, I'm recording with him this evening um, at 1.30 a.m. UK time. So, wow. Yeah, that's dedication right there. Seriously, I'm impressed. <laughs> he's a guy who's very he's very uh, precious of his time. So if, <laughs> if I wanted to speak to him, that was what I needed to do. So I'm willing to do it. So it was uh, episode number 29, Porn and a Haircut, which is an incredible, um, incredible title for an episode. <laughs> Congratulations on that. I think Dave gets the credit, but yes. <laughs> you, you can take it for him. Okay, it's all me. I'm proud of it. <laughs> So on the episode, um, the three of you spoke about the idea of people knowing you and knowing information about you as you know, as you obviously John was a podcaster for, for quite some time with hypercritical. Um and you by by talking every week and having people listen to you every week, they start to learn things about you. I mean on Unprofessional you talk about a lot of um 
personal things that have happened to you. Um, things that have been great, things that haven't been so great. And people start to learn things about you. I mean, a lot of the things that we've been speaking about today are things that I have also learned through the show. So it's kind of a testament to the fact that when you put yourself out there like this, people start to learn about you as a person. Sure. And I just wonder, sort of, I wanted to, to dive into it a little bit. Um, how how is this? How do you like? How do you feel about this sort of thing? So the fact that there are people in the world that know a lot about you, but you don't know at all. Well, I would say, in many times, I don't think about it at all. For much of the time, I don't feel it because when I'm in and around my home life in central New Jersey, uh, you know, I probably have a small handful of friends who listen to the show. And then most people, uh, if they know it exists, don't listen or don't know it exists. Uh, that's not to discount or diminish my own show in any way, but it's that even a, a popular podcast is dwarfed by its listenership is dwarfed by the number of people there are to interact with. But at the same time, you know, I go to a place like Macworld Ioworld or a different tech conference, like I'll be attending a few this year, and there are definitely people who meet you and feel that they already know you uh, from listening to the show. And I know at Macworld Ioworld, it's not just, you know, it's not just uh, people who you think of as listening to these shows, where it's, you know, people who are also in the community either writing about Apple or writing about other things in technology or building apps or whatever it is. It was also just, there were people there at Macworld this year who were norms, you know, they were just folks who use these products and like them and folks who are interested in the community but aren't, aren't direct contributors to it as much as they are enjoyers of it. And uh, I was at a bar and they heard my voice and said, are you Lex Friedman? And I said, yes. And they told me many things about me. Um, and I would say that because I am a flawed human, for me, it mostly, uh, I don't have, I don't have any, uh, emotional hardship with it if anything i think it's flattering um i think you know it's it's great that people are actually listening to the show and not just listening but seemingly paying attention and remembering it and enjoying it you know the fact that we have well when the show first started and the first episode had i don't know but you know more than a hundred people listen to it i thought that was exciting you know if people actually want to hear what we're saying i think that's great one thing that's funny to me, Mike, is, well, that's an unusual word for it, but is we're classified as a comedy podcast in iTunes. And we definitely shouldn't be a tech podcast given our rules about talking about technology. But I never feel, or I should say I rarely feel, like I'm actively trying to uh, be funny on the show and yet people still enjoy it. And I think the show is funny. And when I listen back to it, I think it's funny. Um, but... I don't feel like I'm forcing it. I feel like it's just naturally happening on the show between me and Dave and whoever the guest is that the show is often very entertaining in, in a funny way. And I love that. Um, so I would guess that I would say that, you know, that, that people feel like they know me from the show or know a lot about, do know a lot about me from the show. Uh, I'm okay with, and it also gives me, I think a little bit of added insight into my own feelings towards some of the celebrity guests we have. You know, we, um, we're taping an episode tonight with uh, uh, a person who Dave's been a fan of for his whole life, um, Sean Nelson. Well, not for Dave's whole life, but for, for years. Sean Nelson, who was, the, who was the lead singer of the band Harvey Danger. Uh, or, you know, we've had people like Jonathan Colton and John Flansburg on the show, whom I've been obsessed with. Well, Flansburg, I've been obsessed with since my own childhood. Um, and, 
you know, I've read interviews with them over the years and I think about them and I feel like I know a lot about them. I, you know, I, I know Flansburg's birthday and who his wife is and how they met and how he met his, you know, how he founded the band and his philosophies on having a band. And knowing that I know all that and that he knows nothing of me going into that conversation, I try to be conscious of the fact that I shouldn't presuppose that everything I think I know I'm right about, but also that it, it made our relationship not unfair, uh, but uh, skewed. You know, uh, he was the person I was excited to talk to, and I knew more about him than he knew more than he knew about me. And you know, I think it gives me a little bit of added perspective that I wasn't as consciously aware of before. Uh, to know that there are people like that who have a that sort of same flip situation with me. But overall, I think most of the time I don't give it much attention, and when I do think about it, if anything, I think it's I think it's kind of nice. Yes, because you kind of in that when you're saying it like that as well, you you kind of hold the cards in that in that situation uh, but you also don't want to come across as creepy exactly like you mentioned if you talk about his wife talk about her by name just by first name only right that would be weird right <laughs> do you exactly. remember that time when susan said this right. <laughs> and it's you know and that's anytime i've met somebody who i don't know from anything else and who i know only or who let me try that again anytime i meet people who know me only from listening to the show and who, whom i don't know at all um, they've said things that have been surprising to me that they know about me. Like even you during this interview, you know, you mentioned um, knowing some of the stories I've told. And it's as we do more and more episodes, I forget which things I've already talked about on the show a lot of the time. And it's it's just interesting how much it is that I uh, that I have put out there. And I, I don't want to have a filter or censor myself on the show because I feel – I think about the show mostly as talking to Dave and the guest, and I I think I'm a, a maybe more open than typical person in general, and so I I don't want to I I know that there will be an audience listening to the show, but I feel like if I start worrying about well I shouldn't say that too much, then the show gets less enjoyable or it's more halting or or filtered and it's less fun to listen to. Indeed, yeah. Sometimes it's it's it is far too easy to forget that it's not just the people on the call that ever hear the conversation. Right. And I mean, the thing is, I don't have so many deep, dark secrets that I'm worried about accidentally blurting out and then having syndicated to listeners everywhere. And, I, I, you know, if if the the negative impact is that I'm maybe oversharing a little bit too much, but overall it means the show is better. I, I care about the show being better. And so I'm OK with that trade off. So I had um, one of one of our listeners um, wanted me to ask you. And this is Alex underscore Sabensky. He wanted me to ask you about your dreams of being a comedy writer. Ah, uh, yes. So before I ever even envisioned uh, a tech writer career, before I was full-time working for internet companies, I've always been a fan of comedy. And I did years of improvisational comedy study. Um, and I did, uh, when, when my wife and I moved to L.A., I was in the Groundling School for years, going through that improvisational comedy slash writing comedy, I guess, school and performance center. And I've always loved it. You know, if I could have picked any job for myself, I wanted to write for and eventually perform on Saturday Night Live. Um, and there came a point where my wife and I knew that we wanted to have a family and we wanted to be available for that family. And I, I can't say that if I had devoted my life to doing everything I could to get to Saturday night live, you know, I, I 
I dropped out of the groundling school right when I got to the highest level because we moved to the East Coast and I wasn't able to get to the school anymore. Um, you know, many Saturday Night Live cast members come from the groundling school, like somebody like Will Ferrell or Sherry O'Terry or Phil Hartman, John Lovitz, and it's a it's a long list. Kristen Wiig. Um, you know, I don't know if I if I had passed the last level of the class, would I have gotten into the actual company? And if I had been in the company, would Saturday Night Live have noticed me of the you know twenty people in the company? And if you know, <laughs> there's still been a lot of what ifs. But I knew that for me to keep pursuing that would have meant uh, having a very difficult time serving as a a father in the way that I wanted to be a father. And when push came to shove, I was more interested in being a good dad to the kids I didn't even have yet than I was in continuing to pursue that dream, given the the challenges and making it a reality. You know, if somebody told me if I, that if I put in the time for X number of years that it was a definite that I get to Saturday Night Life, then that changes the formula for me. Then I could say, well, either we'll wait to have a family and we'll do it later in life so that I can, you know, do the crazy hours and hustling that I need to get to kind of a comedy career um, or I'll at least get into it knowing what it, what it means and, and figure out how to adjust it. But when it was going to be a lot of family time uh, potential family time sacrifice with no guarantee of anything, it didn't make sense to me. So I guess the long-winded answer to Alex underscore et cetera's question is, I love comedy, I love comedy writing, and I'm glad that I have other creative outlets today. Um, you know, I've written a couple humor books, I write for Macworld, and that can be funny sometimes, and we do the podcast that you just talked about can can be funny on occasion. Having other creative outlets where I can work some comedy muscles it has been good to me and while i still would say yes now i think if somebody offered me a path to saturday night live uh i i would only do it if i could figure out a way to make it work in a way that wouldn't uh, negatively impact my ability to be a good dad that's a that's a very nice way to look at it and i'm sure that your kids will appreciate that one day <laughs> i hope so <laughs> they better <laughs> that's right <laughs> Those jerks. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting because, I mean, for for a lot of people that are in our industry or, um, or in in you know your writing industry, the tech industry, or people that observe it or, or or love it or enjoy it, they dream of being a writer, you know, for MacWorld, um, and where this was obviously a, a dream for you too. I mean, is comedy your ultimate goal, or is it this stuff? That's a good question. I. I really like the fact that when, say, a new iPhone or a new version of Mac OS comes out, my instinct is I want to play with it and learn it and understand everything about it and explore it. And I used to be jealous of people at places like Macworld who could do that and get paid for it. Uh, so I love the fact that now I also get paid for it. You know, when Outline came out, it was my job, or even before it came out, it was my job to start exploring the developer mills and figure out everything there was to know about it. And I love, if I'm going to want to do that anyway, getting paid for it is great. If somebody came along and said, to you know, my colleague Dan Warren, we want to pay you to publish sci-fi novels all day. My guess is he would leave Macworld to do that. And if somebody came to me with the right offer and said, you know, we want you to, we want to pay you to write comedy for this television show or something, I I think I would probably be pretty tempted, if I could be short of the, of some sense of stability, because that's the, the hardest part, right? I mean, if I, if, if I I think I probably told this story to a professional, because why wouldn't I have? But there was a time. When I lived in L.A., when I got offered a job as a writing assistant on a new sitcom that was an import from the U.K., and, or an Americanized version of a U.K. sitcom, and I had just taken a, a, a new job as a web developer, and we had just bought our first condo uh, in Culver City, California, and 
I could have taken this writer job, but I was just so worried about the, the lower salary, making it hard to pay our mortgage each month, and not having any idea if the show was going to be any good. And they, when they told me about the show and what the plan was, I just didn't feel like I didn't feel like the show had a great chance of success. And as much as I wanted to take that job, because being a writer's assistant is a great stepping stone to becoming a TV writer someday, I felt like it was too risky and too scary. And the show was coupling. And uh, the American version of the show coupling lasted, I think, three episodes before it got canceled. And maybe some of the people who worked in that writer's room, and even as assistants, ended up creating, I don't know, the the top sitcoms that came later and I missed out on it, but I'm very glad to not have subjected myself to that sort of thing. So yes, I think that uh, overall between what I'm doing now and the idea of writing, getting paid stably with stability to write comedy, um, that probably the comedy one is closer to my true life dream, but I have no regrets about what I'm doing now and I, I derive a lot of enjoyment from it. So that's a good thing. So, uh, Coupling is a show that I love very much, obviously the British version. Are you familiar with the show at all? I, I never saw the British version, although I understand that they, they tried to do an American version because it was supposed to be excellent. You should try and seek it out. Um, I'm I'll not, do that. I'm not sure if Netflix in, in, in your fine country has it, but we have it here. But I'm sure it's findable online, as, as most things are. So I've got a couple of, couple of last little questions for you, Lex, before I let you go today. By the way, I just want you to know it is available you to watch on Netflix here. So I'm putting it on the instant queue right now. You you will enjoy it. It is one of the best. Do you know who wrote it? Uh, well, I do now because I see it there on Netflix's page. Stephen Moffat. And of, he's pretty funny. Yeah. So yeah, people, he's the Doctor Who and uh, Sherlock. Sherlock, right. So he, it's good lineage, that show. Does Benedict Cumberbatch ever make an appearance in Coupling? He does not, unfortunately. I just wanted to say his name. <laughs> I think we all do. Um, it's it is mandated in this country that we all must say his name at least once a day. <laughs> I've already had my allotted Cumberbatch for the day. So. Understood. <laughs> so um, at Grant Duckworth would like me to ask you about your treadmill desk, and he wondered um, if walking and working were mutually exclusive. So I guess what he's wanting to know is you. I people may or may not be aware that you have a desk, which is also a treadmill which you might want to explain how that logistically works. Um, so it's, and if you yeah, can do it, it at the same time. It's a treadmill built for desk purposes, so it's got no arm rails on it or anything. So the, the treadmill just slides under a standing high desk, and then it's got a, a, a wire to connect the, the control panel to it. And so you put the control panel on your desk, and the only thing you sort of lean against or hold on to is the desk surface itself, and then you just walk. Um, I just kept reading stories, articles about how uh, sitting all day was bad for you. And I would read those articles while I was sitting all day um, because I worked at a desk. And especially, you know, working from home means I don't have another cubicle to walk over to. Uh, there's no, I mean, the the only stairs in my house are to go up to the bedrooms or to go down to the basement, which I wasn't doing at all during the workday. And I would walk to the kitchen and the bathroom and back into the office again. But it was, I mean, literally there were days when I think I would walk fewer than a thousand steps and that's not very much at all. Um, so I started using a standing desk because they said that standing was better for you than sitting. And after a year of standing, uh, I was bored. And I read something about treadmill desks, and I was, I was very nervous to make the initial investment. One, because it's, it costs a lot of money, depending on how you do it. If you do it yourself, you can probably do it for considerably cheaper. But if you need to buy a treadmill for it and get a standing high desk, it's a big investment. Here was you know, going to be... I had a standing high desk that I had sort of made from a regular high desk and shelf toppers and cardboard boxes. 
and then the treadmill is going to be just about a thousand dollars. And uh, that's U.S. Mike. And I, um, you know, I was nervous, and I thought, man, this could be ridiculous, and it could be hard to do or hard to stick with. But I wanted to do it, and so I did it. And I've been treading ever since, and now it's more than uh, two and a half years. So it's definitely not mutually exclusive. There are times when I think I'm now a better writer while I'm walking. I started out at, um, you know, one mile an hour, and now I'm walking at 2.5 miles per hour, which is faster than I ever thought I would walk. That's, um, uh, you know, it's it's probably the fastest, although I said this at one and a half miles an hour too, but um, it's it's probably the fastest I'll go because I think after that typing would start to suffer, but you very quickly get used to typing while walking and you get used to mousing and keyboarding while walking. It's about four kilometers an hour that I'm walking at. And, um, I, uh, I don't know. There, there are definitely times each day where I stop the treadmill. Somebody's asking me a question and I don't know the answer. And it's, there's maybe a little bit of time sensitivity or stress involved. I'll stop the treadmill for a second to help me focus. But, and I, I'm never consciously aware that I'm about to do that to, to focus or to deal with whatever the issue is, but I know it does happen a couple of times a day, almost every day. But when I'm in the middle of writing a piece, if I'm not treading, it feels weird and I have to start treading. Uh, and I do walk just a ton during the week. And then on the weekends, I sit around all day and get nothing at all. But I use various fitness trackers to keep track of how far I've gone. And today it looks like uh, up until I sat down about an hour ago to record this, I had done 15,000 steps today, which was just over seven miles. And I'll probably do another three or four miles before the day's out. Wow. That's, I love it. That's very active. So you've kind of also led yourself into uh, my last question, actually, which comes from at Chris Humphreys underscore. And uh, Chris wonders if you see smartwatches like the potential iWatch change the competition of fitness devices like the Fitbit. Yes. I think it'll be impossible for I think it'd be silly if smartwatches don't incorporate pedometer style things, especially since the jawbone up and the new Fitbit Flex and the Nike fuel band are all already wrist worn trackers. If I'm gonna have something on my wrist to begin with that's you know, telling time and connecting with my iPhone or whatever else, it might as well have a pedometer built into it too. So I think it's inevitable that that will come. And so I don't think that it necessarily means that Fitbit goes out of business or the jawbone stops selling me up as much as I think it means that we can either expect to see, you know, uh, a smartwatch like a Pebble with built-in Fitbit technology where they do some kind of licensing deal or uh, uh, a Fitbit branded smartwatch. Yeah, it would kind of be silly not to include it because it's just like a, a box to tick, if anything else. Exactly. You know, my, my review, as we speak right now, my review has not run of this uh, smartwatch I'm wearing right now called the MetaWatch Frame, but I hadn't heard of it before they asked if they could send one to me, and I thought, well, this will just be a crappy version of the Pebble. My Pebble has not arrived yet, to be honest, but um, I'm, I'm very, very fond of this MetaWatch Frame that's on my wrist. I think smartwatches are very cool, and they are going to be very big. Well, that is very. I'm sure. Will you be reviewing the the, the Pebble for for? Michael? Actually, Jason Snell already reviewed the Pebble for us, and um, he he liked it cautiously. You know, he's waiting for even more to happen because they haven't. Uh, you know, they haven't been able to deliver on all the f- software features they want. But one great thing about smartwatches, like smartphones, is that you know, if the hardware is solid, you can fix them through software updates, and I think that'll happen for Pebble. 
be interesting to see. <coughs> I wasn't sure about the uh, about the Pebble, um, and I'm kind of pleased that I didn't buy one because with a lot of Kickstarter stuff, I'm like, I'm just going to wait and see if see how this is actually received. Um, and then you know I would have bought it and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. So yes. I'm kind of pleased that I didn't didn't do it. I think it was I didn't um, buy the elevation dock, but I think that was a lesson to a lot of people that sometimes they can't. You know, if they're really successful, they can't always meet with demand. Physical. Product. That's right. Yeah, and it's the thing is the the motivations for Kickstarter people still use it for pre-ordering and I know what I a lot of time think of it as pre-ordering if you think of it as helping fund somebody's development and then as a bonus eventually you get that product it's a little bit easier on the brain but definitely the, the, the pebble took a long time <laughs> I typically back things that are not products or if it's a company that has a proven track record of being able to produce something so yeah. you know, so then I know that they're going to be able to do it, especially if they've had successful Kickstarters in the past. Right, they're good people to back because they know what what could and could not potentially happen. Right, there's there's little risk in backing something from Studio Neat, the people who made the the Cosmonaut yeah. and the uh, the Glyph, because they have a proven track record. They were exactly who I was thinking of when I said that. Yeah, so they're, they're they're good they're good people. So Lex, thank you for joining me, sir. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, it's been a joy to join you, Mike. I thank you for asking me. So why don't you tell people where, where, is, where is a good place to find Lex online? All right. I'm going to give you too many places. Do and I'll all. do it as quickly as possible. You can go to LexFriedman.com and you can go to MacWorld.com and find me there. Unprofesh.com is U-N-P-R-O-F-E-S-H.com. And on any microblogging service of note, you can find me at LexFRI. I say LexFry, some say LexFree, but either way, you'll find me there too. Free. <laughs> LexFree. That's right. Obviously, all of these links will be in our show notes, which you can find at 70decibels.com forward slash C-M-D-S-P-A-C-E. So um, next, next time, I am going to be joined by Mr. Neelai Patel of The Verge. Hopefully. Very cool. Yeah, me and Eli, he had to reschedule once. Hopefully, he will be here next week. I've scheduled it with um, with his secretary, producer, handler person. So I will, we will see, but Eli will be a, an interesting discussion, I'm sure. So thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Command Space. You can find me on Twitter and app.net. I'm imike, I-M-Y-K-E. And uh, always love to hear from you, so feel free to get in touch. And until next time, thank you for listening and bye-bye.